Now, our scripture this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 25. We're going to begin in verse 13 and go to the end of the chapter. You can find it on page 1110 in your pew Bible. If you are new with us and didn't bring a Bible with you, you can look right in front of you and you'll see a black one there. It's there for you to use. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. We believe in the power of the word of God and we don't want you to leave here without it in your hands. So again, our scripture this morning is Acts 25, beginning in verse 13. It is written. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before they accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I might have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner, not to indicate the charges against him. Here ends the reading of the word of God. Let us go to God in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we travel through Acts, and believe it or not, there's the light at the end of the tunnel. We will be through Acts before Thanksgiving. So before you carve into your turkey on Thanksgiving, we will have completed the sermon series on Acts. But here we are in chapter 25, and and after Pastor Chris's excellent sermon last week about false accusations in our lives and how Paul dealt exactly with that, we get a scripture that seems a bit more technical. That, that we, as we read it, it's really there to fill the space to show us the movements, how Paul asked to be sent to Rome to go before Caesar, who at this time is Nero. And how all of that managed to transpire. Festus is new on the scene and he says, I inherited this prisoner from Felix. And so he 
heard the charges himself and heard the defense himself. And Paul appealed to go to Caesar. And he says here in front of Agrippa in the tribunal, he says, I don't know what to write. Maybe you guys can help me. Let's examine Paul. Now, in part of what Festus does is he's laying all of this out to King Agrippa II. He mentions this in verse 19. He says, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Festus is confused and confounded as to why that's any kind of a big deal. He just doesn't get and understand the significance of Jesus being alive and how that matters greatly. It has been said over time that if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, then Jesus is of no importance. But if he was resurrected from the dead, then he is of infinite importance. But what he cannot be in our own lives is of moderate importance. And Festus just doesn't get it. He says they're arguing over this dead man, Jesus, but this guy says he's alive. He shrugs his shoulders and he says, I don't know how to investigate it. But we know how to investigate it. And it's a question worthy of us to dive into if it's all hinges on the resurrection, whether Jesus is of no importance or of infinite importance. And so we can go through the word of God. We'll look at the claims of what Jesus says himself. But first, let's hear what Paul asserts about Jesus, about his own resurrection. See, even in 2019, people are still questioning whether or not Jesus was actually resurrected. In fact, at a seminary in 1998, there was a professor, a scholar, and historian who at this brand new orientation class on their first day asked them the question, who here believes in the resurrection of Jesus? Well, these are all people coming to seminary for the first time, wanting to go in ministry. And so you get the response you expect. They raise their hands. Yeah, Jesus was resurrected. This is why they're here. And then the professor quickly dashes their hearts and their dreams and says, whether Jesus was resurrected or not is of no importance. But it's the narrative that matters. And their collective hearts broke in the same way that our hearts break when we read what Festus says. Jesus is dead, but he says he's alive. I don't know how to deal with this. It doesn't really matter. Paul believes everything matters when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. That without it, everything we do is meaningless. In fact, he tells this in an entire chapter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the entire chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus, but he gets really into it in verse 12 when he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our, your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most 
to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul argues for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much so, he makes the claim that if Jesus was not actually resurrected from the dead, as he had said, as it actually happened, then our preaching of the gospel of Jesus, our preaching of Jesus dying for our sins on the cross without a resurrection is meaningless. That our faith in Jesus is meaningless. And that we can even be charged with misrepresenting God if we testify to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and he actually wasn't, which is punishable by death. See, the resurrection was of infinite importance for Paul because he knew it to be true. And he goes on to say that this resurrection, if it, if it didn't actually happen, your, your faith is futile for you're still in your sins, which means we're unforgiven, which means we don't have right standing with God, which means that the time comes for our death. We don't have Jesus to hope in, but only the life we lived. And let me tell you, folks, ain't none of us good enough. And Paul understands that. He says, even those that have fallen asleep, who have died, who had already believed in Christ, well, they're perishing. It would also mean Christ himself is perishing, but this is not the truth. See, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said that the resurrection is a fact better attested to than any event recorded in history, modern or ancient. For when we flip just through the scripture, we see that Jesus appeared to the apostles some individually, some together as a group. He even allowed Thomas to touch his wounds. That when he walked with them on Emmaus, it wasn't until he broke the bread that their eyes became open that this was Jesus who they were talking to. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Paul will go on to tell the Corinthians that there are over 500 men at one time that Jesus appeared to resurrected from the dead. Some of them are still alive. You should go talk to them, he said. Ask them what they think about the resurrection. Paul says this is no thing, silly thing to argue over. It's not just some dispute that I need to go to Jerusalem and handle, for he had already been there. And he'd done that. That's how he wound up in custody of the Roman Empire. But he knew that Jesus was standing with him and said that he would testify, testify before kings and before Rome. So next week, when we get into chapter 26, we'll see that he testifies before King Agrippa II. And then later, he will move on towards Rome and eventually have his seat before the emperor. But what Paul gets at through his letters, through his writings, is he wants us to know that if there is no actual resurrection, then death hasn't been defeated. Jesus is not victorious. Now, the Apostle Peter, he agrees with Paul about the importance of the resurrection. He writes in his first letter in verse 3, he begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
by God who is great in mercy, who has caused us to be born again in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Here, Peter explicitly connects Jesus' resurrection with our regeneration. That without Jesus' resurrection, we have no hope of being born again. That there is no new life, for our new life comes in Christ. That it is through this resurrection of Jesus that Christ earned for us the new kind of life that we receive when we are born again. And Paul goes and connects the resurrection to our own baptism. So as you sit here now and you begin thinking about your baptism and the waters that you were in, we hear the word Paul writes to the Roman church. In chapter 6, he says this in verse 4, beginning in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our very baptism proclaims the resurrection of Jesus. When we are submerged in the water, we are dying to self and to our sins. And when we emerge from the water, we are raised into new life in Christ Jesus. This is the proclamation we make without saying a word. Because this is the story of Jesus and the gospel. For he was dead in our sins on the cross. And then three days later, he emerged raised from the dead by God the Father into new life, imperishable, undefiled, eternal. See, Paul also says in Romans 4, beginning in verse 24, he says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What Paul does here is he takes the death of Jesus on the cross, the shedding of his blood, atoning for our sins, and the resurrection from the dead, and joins them together and says they are not separate events. Rather, they book in the same event of the crucifixion of our salvation, that they are forever linked together, that one without the other does not work, that it requires both, that it was Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he died to our trespasses. But then when he was resurrected, it was God approving the work of Christ on the cross that he approved and deemed the work on the cross, the shedding of his blood as sufficient and supreme that there was no more penalty to be paid. There was no suffering and the darkness of death to continue. And so when Paul says in 
Romans 6, that we're united with Christ. Folks, we are united with Christ in death and resurrection. For you see, God's approval of Christ is approval of us as justified, as in right standing, as in worthy of spending eternity with the Father. Festus, Festus, he doesn't get it. He doesn't see this resurrection issue of Jesus dead or alive of any great importance. He has no clue how to investigate it. But we know otherwise. For you see, for all of our hope to be in Jesus, he must be 100% exactly who he says he is. So what is it Jesus says about himself in the resurrection? Well, we go to the Gospels and we find out. We read in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 in verse 21. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day, raised. Later, in Matthew, in chapter 17, in verse 22, he says this, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed. In the Gospel of Mark, he records it in chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then it says at the beginning of verse 32, and he said this plainly. He said this plainly. It's a great indicator that Jesus didn't mix words. He didn't speak in a coded language. There was no parable to talk about his death and resurrection. He didn't issue it to them in hieroglyphics needing a special decoder ring. Jesus spoke very plainly that he will die and he will be resurrected. He didn't speak about them separately, but spoke about them together as the crucifixion, that those are what will happen. These are the events to come and transpire. And one day you will understand them as the moment of your salvation. And he said this plainly to them. For even Luke records it in chapter 9, verse 21 through 22. He says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. C.S. Lewis, who held a radio broadcast during World War II and before coming to Christ, claimed to be an atheist. In his radio broadcast and talking about Jesus and mere Christianity, he posed the argument that we all must do something for Jesus. And he gives us three options. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. For you see, if the resurrection did not occur, then it's easy to mark Jesus as a liar or a lunatic. 
He's not worthy of our praise and cannot be the source and object of our hope. But it is precisely because Jesus said he would be resurrected. All the history and events and testimonies point to Jesus' resurrection that we can place our hope, a sure hope, a firm hope in Jesus, a faith that we can trust him fully, not only for our salvation, but for our resurrection like his. Your faith is not meaningless. See, when C.S. Lewis talked about the liar, the lunatic, the Lord, he also said this in his broadcast. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who claimed he was a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. He continues on saying, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit him, spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange, or terrifying, or unlikely it may seem. I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And we're gathered here because we testify to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For when we gather on Easter, Far and wide, it is proclaimed that he is risen. And the response follows, he is risen indeed. It's why the sunrise on that morning, we wake up and the hallelujahs roll off our tongues. It's why when we come here to worship, we sing, we praise, we raise our hands. Because on that day, oh, happy day, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you sought us from the time you formed us and have been working for our good and our salvation. Lord, we are so thankful that you sent your son who was obedient to your will to death on the cross and through his resurrection. We are thankful that you have given us your son whom we can trust fully to give us the hope to go in the days ahead, not only for this world, but for eternity. For it's in Jesus Christ we pray.